And one of the sports I played was actually baseball. And so yesterday, I'm talking to my mother, and I was telling her about when I played baseball. And she says, I don't ever remember you playing baseball. I said, of course you don't remember. You never came to a single game. Of course you don't remember I played baseball. Not that I'm bitter. And I was the pitcher, for goodness sakes. Are you kidding me? The pitcher's the rock star. Are you kidding me? That was my fastball, and my mama never saw it. Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. So today I'm carrying on in the series that began a few weeks ago called The Greater Passion. Week one, we talked about the power of passion. Week two, the passion paradox. Week three, the passionate partner. And today we're going to talk about the passionate parent. And I know one of the things that people are struggling with through this series, which is meant to challenge you actually and struggle, is how do I figure out my greater passions compared to my regular everyday passions? And here's one simple exercise. All you have to do is go read the book of Genesis. Because what God does is he actually, the order of creation, actually outlines his priorities as far as our relationships. And it's real simple. You just go read the story and here's what it is. Number one is our relationship with God. Number two is our relationship with our spouse. Number three is our relationship with our kids. Number four is our relationship with our occupation or our career. Number five is your relationship with your friends and your community. And number six is your relationship with your place of worship, or in our case, our church. So it's actually pretty easy to figure out what God's priorities are for us and what his greater purposes are for us. And, uh, you know, when we look at some of the things that we get so obsessed with in our culture, our motorcycle, our boat, our car, our golf, or our football, you recognize that those might be valuable pastimes, but they hardly qualify as greater passions. And so here's what we're going to do on The Passionate Parent is we're going to look at the book of Genesis and the book of Malachi. And what they are is they're the bookends of the Old Testament. And the very first command that God gave man in the book of Genesis, he reinforces in the last verses of the last book in the Old Testament. So the very beginning, the first, you all know the first command. The first commandment that God gave to man was this. It's all about parenting. And it's be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So he told us to do that first commandment. It's really been the only one we've been able to keep. <laughs> How are we doing with this being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth? How are we doing with that? We are killing this thing. Seven billion people. Uh, I think sex is God's way into tricking us into having children. That's what I think. But nevertheless, we are rocking that one. But it still doesn't make us passionate parents. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go and look at the last thing he says in the Old Testament. And so this is Malachi chapter 4. The very last thing God says in the Old Testament before 400 years of prophetic silence, before John the Baptist shows up on the scene. You know that the first and the last things you say are often the most important. So here it is, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So I don't want you to miss this. 
that the very first thing he told us to do, he now reinforces at the end. And he says, if we don't have this thing called family, if we don't have this passion called parenting, then the whole world is in trouble. And I know that when I was talking about this a few weeks ago, I mentioned that my wife, Kathy, her passion has always been for her kids and her grandkids. And another mother in the church came up to me after, and she said something interesting. She said, Pastor Mark, isn't everybody passionate about their children? And the answer to that question is yes, theoretically, but in practice, probably not. I mean, the fact that we have 11,000 children in foster care in Winnipeg alone probably tells you that we're not necessarily the passionate parents that we are supposed to be. The parents in the room already know this. Parenting is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's the toughest challenge you'll ever have. It's tougher than your job and tougher than starting a business and tougher than excelling at some sport. Parenting is this huge challenge that we have to work at. And I love what FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, said once. He said, you cannot prepare the future for your children, but you can prepare your children for the future. And that's what a passionate parent does. A passionate parent prepares the children for whatever inevitability the world's going to throw at them. So that's what this teaching is going to be all about today. This comes straight out of the book, uh, A Greater Passion. And I'm going to give you the parameters for how you become a passionate parent and how you prepare your kids for the future. So here it is, I use an acrostic, the, the word kids, K-I-D-S, and this is what it stands for. The K stands for keep your kids a value. The I stands for instill your virtues. The D stands for develop a family vision, and the S stands for stay vigilant. So we'll start obviously with the first one. The K stands for keep your kids a value. I want to show you a little passage that I think really underscores this. It's from the Psalms. 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Any of you know who wrote Psalm 127? That would be King David. He wrote this. And you know, he might have had a few faults. He did have faults. Everybody has faults. But I'll tell you one thing that you've got to give David credit for was he was a passionate parent. And you go look at this story. He made some mistakes. One of them was his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. But there was a child born from that, and every child is precious. And that child was born, and David was passionate for that child, and that child got sick unto death, and David lay on his face for seven days, praying and fasting and weeping for that child. And that child passed away. And he bore the hurt of that. And then we find the death of his other son, Absalom. And Absalom's a fascinating story because Absalom rebelled against his father. Absalom was trying to overthrow his father and take the kingship from him, and yet he died in battle. And when he heard his son Absalom had died, it said he wept uncontrollably, saying, Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, oh that I should have died in your place. He wished he had died in the place of his son. That's how valuable his son was to him, even though his son was trying to rebel against him. And see, that's a picture of the passionate parent. If I was to ask you as parents, how many of you in this room and online, how many of you would lay down your life for your own child? How many would? The hands are going up all around the room. I know people in their, in their homes are thinking that same thing. So I want to tell you a little story about a mission trip I was on once. So I took in a team down to Mexico. We were in this city of Matamoros, Mexico. And it's a border city, uh, bordering Texas. And in this city, it's a, it's a, uh, because it's a border city, you have all kinds of people flocking because there's these NAFTA factories there and there's jobs there. 
And these cities grow very fast, and they grow very, very indeterminately. And we were working particularly in a squatter's village. And squatter villages where people just show up and they start building ramshackle houses here and there. And so these people are living in cardboard boxes and tin shacks. And, and we were in there, and there was a church that we were working with in the squatter's village, and we were ministering to these people. And the pastor wanted to take me to his home to meet his family. It was this tin shack with a bunch of pieces of metal. One of them, piece of, a big chunk of a school bus was holding up one side of the thing. This is the, I remember this because I had to duck to get into the door. And so I ducked and went into this, this home, had a dirt floor course. And there was his wife with a huge smile on her face. And there was her, his seven scruffy kids. There's no other way to describe it. They're living on a dirt floor. And they were all beaming and they were all just smiling. And the pastor introduced me to his family, his wife and his seven kids, and he was so proud. And he had such a big smile on his face. And I looked at this smile on his face and I said to him, Feliz hombre, a happy guy, happy man. And he goes, no, no soy un hombre rico. Anybody know what I just said? I mangled it. But what I said was, no, I am a rich man. And I couldn't help stop thinking about that all day long. I was thinking about how this guy has nothing. He's dirt poor. He's living, literally living on dirt. But he understood that he had a reward from the Lord, and he was a wealthy man because he had this beautiful family with seven kids. And that night I'm lying on my bed thinking about this, separated from my own family because I'm now in Mexico. And I started to think about Mary and Joseph and the fact that our Lord was born in a similar place to what I just spent the day in. I mean, right? He was born in a stable. He was uh, laid in a manger. would have had a dirt floor. He, he was born in that situation. And you remember how the story plays out. What happens is the wise men come, and they're worshiping with exceedingly great joy. There's a lot of joy. They weren't thinking about the surrounding. They weren't thinking about the donkeys and the chickens, were they? There was this great joy. And then the wise men warn Mary and Joseph that there's a hit been put out on Jesus' life and better get out of town. So instead of returning to Nazareth, where they're from, where'd they go? They went to Egypt. I want you to think about what Mary and Joseph did for the well-being of their child. They gave up their job, their home, their community, their friends. I mean, Joseph was a carpenter. He would have had to have given that up. They literally left it all behind and went to a foreign country for two years. They paid the ultimate price for their child because Mary and Joseph were passionate parents and they valued their son. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the trappings and the accoutrements of this world, the things and the materialism, and, and we, we think we're doing it all for our family, and sometimes we are, but sometimes we're not. We're doing it for ourselves. So when we look at our own life, we have to ask this simple question. Are we truly passionate parents? And then I was thinking about my own upbringing. Because my parents, they had seven kids, so I'm, I'm cutting them some slack here. But my parents never came to a single game that any of our kids ever were in. And uh, that was sort of typical. Growing up in the 60s, the parents just didn't go. My parents put me in every single sport there was. I was in every sport. And I realize only now that they were trying to get me out of the house every single day in some way. So I was in diving. I was in swimming. I was in gymnastics. I was in uh, football. I was in volleyball. I was in basketball. Every day, I was shooed out of the house. And I would go off to these sporting events, and my parents never showed up. And one of the sports I played was actually baseball. And so yesterday, I'm talking to my mother, and I was telling her about when I played baseball. And she says, 
I don't ever remember you playing baseball. I said, of course you don't remember. You never came to a single game. Of course you don't remember I played baseball. Not that I'm bitter. And I'll tell you something else. I was the pitcher, for goodness sakes. Are you kidding me? The pitcher's the rock star. Are you kidding me? That was my fastball, and my mama never saw it. My mother saw that for the very first time last night. <laughs> now, I really am joking. I am not bitter about that. I just think it's absolutely ridiculous that she didn't come. But that was the day and age that we lived in. In those days, the parents just weren't engaged in that way. And I actually see something, I think. I think we're seeing something in our culture where the parents are actually getting a hold of Malachi chapter 4. And I think God is turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. And I think we are seeing that these parents are, are, are at these games and doing these things and involved with their kids' life. And I think it's wonderful. Sometimes too far, right? you got the whole helicopter parent thing going. But you do see the picture and how important this is that the, the very first point of this is that, that we would value our kids, that we would always keep them of value. Because here's the, here's the bottom line of this. It doesn't matter how old your kids get, nobody's going to love them like you are. You will love them unconditionally. They will face all kinds of strife and all kinds of challenges and all kinds of criticism in life, but there's one person or two people in this world that are going to love them no matter what happens, and that's their passionate parents, right? <laughs> So, so the first thing is this. The K stands for keep your kids of value. The I stands for instill your virtues. Now, I want to show you another passage. And uh, here we are. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Look at the words I've emphasized here. Uh, verse 19 says, you shall teach them to your children. Talking about God's precepts, his laws, his commands. He says, you shall teach them to your children. Speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now here's my question for you. How often are you supposed to be teaching your children your virtues? All the time. All the time, right? When you're standing up, when you're sitting down, when you're walking, when you're lying, when you're rising. And let's, let's not misunderstand this. It's not telling us to lecture our kids from morning to night. Some people think that. You just lecture them and hector them all day long, and drill them in. That's not what it's saying. Here's what it's telling you to do. It's telling you to instill your virtues, to just let them leak out of you every day. Just every day, you give them little value lessons, little object lessons. You just sort of spill it out every day. And that's how you parent. And here's some amazing research, is that the, a child's moral compass, his moral foundation, is actually laid by the time he's nine years old. Boy, isn't that amazing that you, to think that by nine they've already figured out the difference between right and wrong? And it all has to do with how you did during those early years. And I hear parents say this all the time. They say, oh, little Johnny was perfect until he turned 15 and he turned into the biggest rotter in the world. Well, you know what? I don't, first of all, I don't believe he was perfect. Secondly, uh, it didn't happen overnight. You have to back the train up because there may have been something neglected along the way where there were certain values that were not instilled early enough, and he ended up where he was because you weren't diligent enough in the front end. And I'll give you a great example from Scripture on that, and it's Eli. Eli was the high priest. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were grown men, absolute stinkers. Do you remember this story? His sons became priests, and they had no character whatsoever. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It said that they didn't even know the Lord, and these men were priests. And they were sleeping with the women in the gates of the temple. 
And so then the report came back to Eli and said, look at your sons, look at the things you're doing. So it says, Eli went to his son and said, why do you do these things? I'm thinking, seriously? That's, that's your response? Why do you do these things? Why, what, is it, what do you mean, why are you doing these things? Because you failed as a parent, that's why. You, didn't, you installed them as priests, even though they didn't even know the Lord, even though they had no character. And see, Eli has to take some responsibility. He was a good man, but he wasn't a good parent. He did not do a good job. And here's the little secret I want you to know. You have to pick your battles. You're not going to win every battle with your kids. You have to pick your battles and decide what things do you really want to instill into your kids? What values do you want them to carry forward for the rest of their life? Because I'll tell you, the things that are really important to you, the things you carry and that are real in you, the genuine virtues, those virtues you will instill one way or another. Whatever they are, for good or bad, they're going to pick them up. Now I want to tell you a fantastic historical uh, story. Uh, in the 1930s, there was a gangster by the name of Al Capone. Most of you would know that name. And Al Capone had a lawyer that kept him out of jail. His name was Easy Eddie. Gangsters always have nicknames. And here's a picture of Easy Eddie with Al Capone. You can guess which one's which. And of course, if you're the gangster's lawyer, you're kind of a gangster too by association because you're actually hiding his crimes and getting him off on things and he's clearly guilty. And so Easy Eddie had one son. And his son, uh, who he named Butch, in those days Butch was a guy's name, uh, and, and his son Butch was his only son, and he realized this, that he did not have any way to give his son a good name, because he was a criminal, and he was associated with criminals. And he thought, the one thing I really want to give my son is a good name, and I can't give him a good name. And so he made a big and bold decision when his son was younger. He decided to turn state's evidence against Al Capone. And because of his testimony, Al Capone went to jail for 11 years for tax evasion. Now, for his efforts, uh, Capone put a hit out on him, and a year later, he was killed in the streets of Chicago. Here's a picture of the, of the site after he was driving his car. He was shot dead. And now young Butch is actually an orphan. But he never forgot what his father had done. His father had done, in the end, his father had done the right thing. And uh, those were the values that he learned, and he had laid down his life to do something right. And so then, in the Second World War, Butch becomes a pilot, and he becomes a fighter pilot, and he's fighting off of an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. And uh, what had happened was he was out on patrol, he was by himself, and he encountered an entire Japanese squadron of Japanese Zeros coming in on the aircraft carrier for an attack. It was all by himself. And he single-handedly fought off this entire squadron. And he, he bobbed and he weaved and he flew and, and he shot them down. When he ran out of ammo, because he knew it was going to happen, there was going to be people lose their life if he didn't stop this attack. And when he ran out of ammo, he started dive-bombing the Japanese Zeros and clipping their wings off with the bottom of his plane. He managed to knock every last plane out of the sky and return to the aircraft carrier unscathed. Well, the plane was a mess, but he survived it. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest award in, in US military. Unfortunately, a year and a half later, he was shot down over the Pacific. Now, his hometown of Chicago decides they're going to honor the memory of Butch by renaming the Chicago airport after him. Anybody been to Chicago airport? You know what it's called? Who, tell me what it's called. That's right, it's the O'Hare 
Airport, named after Butch O'Hare, and Easy Eddie was Eddie O'Hare. The one thing he wanted to give his son was a good name. He couldn't do it. Now it's one of the most revered names in the entire city of Chicago. And if you ever happen to go to Chicago, drop by the uh, second terminal, Terminal 2, and you can see the, uh, the uh, monument there to him, Butch O'Hare exhibit. There's the F4F Wildcat that he flew. And uh, I'll tell you, if you know the story, and now you do, You'll go there, it's very moving to see this. And what happens when we instill our values to our children and our virtues to our children, it's, it's uh, an incredible thing to see them play out. And whatever your virtues are, good or bad, I'm telling you, they're gonna pick them up. So the K stands for keep your kids a value, the I stands for instill your virtues, and the D stands for develop a family vision. So I wanna show you something, uh, another verse here. This is actually from the writings of King Solomon. It's uh, Proverbs 22, and it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, that when he is old he will not depart. And you know, with this verse, a lot of times we would say, well, isn't this instilling your values? It actually says more than that. And I know most of you could quote that verse. It's a very famous verse. But the word train up a child is actually literally, if you were to translate it from the original language, it means to initiate one on the mouth of their journey. Simple terms. It means to point somebody in the right direction. And it says, if you will point your kids in the right direction, when they are old, they will not depart from this. And so what we do is we actually get them started and we point them in the right direction. And once you've got them pointed in the right direction, they'll keep moving in that direction. And I'll give you the perfect example that every parent that's ever taught their kid to ride a bicycle will know, right? You've ever done that? Every parent does that. And there's only one way to do it. Right? What do you do? You put them on the bike, you say, go for it, I'll watch, stand back here and watch you run into a tree. No, that's not how it works. What do you do? You put them on the bike, and then what do you do? You hold, you hold it up? You have to hold it up. They're going to fall over. They don't know how to balance this thing. And then what you do is you point them in the right direction, which means not at the house, not at the tree, not at the garage, not at a curb. You find the widest street, and you put them right smack in the middle. You say, well, when you actually know how to ride, don't ride in the middle. But for now, we're putting you in the middle, right? And then what do you do? Do you just push them and let them go? No, you run alongside them, and so they're moving in the right direction, and only when you feel confident that they're on the right track do you let go. And that's how you teach a child to ride a bike. It's actually how you teach a child to move forward in life. And you know, when you look at the Jewish culture, they totally got this. And uh, here's a little stat for you. You know that 2% of North American uh, population is Jewish. And yet, 33% of the Supreme Court judge, judges are Jewish, 33% of Nobel Prize winners, 66% of the Tony Award winners, and I'm gonna make this one up, 99% of the comedians. <laughs> and what is, it, what is it about the Jewish culture? Is it because they are you know, racially superior? And the answer is no, it's about parenting. And if you know anything about Jewish parents, they expect their kids to succeed. They, push them into being doctors and lawyers and comedians. Not so sure about the comedians one. But they, they really focus them in that direction. And it's amazing what you can do with your children if you develop a family vision that you want something from them, you want them to succeed, you want them to become everything that God created them to be. So I want to tell you this little story about raising my own kids on this. So I sent our, our kids to the school where all three of them where what they did at the end of the year was they had an awards night and they gave awards for the highest marks. And when I heard about that, I decided to incentivize my kids. And I told them at the beginning of the year 
that if you win the highest mark, I'm going to give you $10. I know some of you are thinking, wow, last of the big spenders. I'm going to give you $10. If you get the second highest mark, I'm going to give you $5. My, first, my two older ch children were, you know, are really academic. They thrived on this. Ten bucks, that was all the money in the world. And so they just went for it. And at the, every year, at the end of the year, they were doing this awards banquet. I was handing out bills, fives and tens, to my, my two older kids. So then my youngest daughter, the one you know and love, that stands up here you know, every couple of weeks, who's sitting right over there listening to this story. So I told her when she got into that school, because she was younger, and I said, so if you win the high mark, I will be paying you $10. To which she goes, Oh, 10 whole dollars. Who gives a rip? <laughs> so then the first year, she, the first year, uh, she says, uh, just for the record, Pop, I won't be winning any awards tonight. And hiding my disappointment, I said, uh, well, it's a good thing because I didn't bring any money anyway. Of course, was totally being insincere about that. So anyway, true to her word, she went 12 years without winning a high mark award. I mean, she's dedicated, she's committed. So she goes through, that didn't cost me a dime. So she goes through 12 years, doesn't win a single thing. We're there, she's graduating, we're at her grade 12 graduation, she's graduating from high school. We go through all the high awards. I didn't even go to the bank, I have no money on me. And, uh, and of course, all the awards are being given out, she didn't win any of them. And so then we were down to the last award of the night, it was something different. The teacher behind me taps me on my shoulder, he's sitting right behind me, one of her teachers, and said, Mr. Hughes, this is the big one. Keep your eyes open. I'm going, oh, the big one. Can't, don't know what that is. So they announced the Leadership Award. And the Leadership Award was the award for the person in the school that exemplified Christian leadership and was a great example bringing about spirit uh, uh, integrity and honesty and inspiring the rest of the student body. And then I heard my daughter's name announced, Danica Hughes, the Leadership Award. And I just about fell over because I didn't see that coming. And she went up there and re received that award. I didn't have $10, so I bought her a Slurpee layer. And <laughs> And, and, but it taught me a good lesson in, in this is because, you know, I just decided I was going to just treat her like I did the other kids. Didn't realize that that really wasn't her strong suit. That really wasn't her thing. And that really who she was was a leader. And that she had different gifts. And academics weren't necessary. She didn't do badly, but that wasn't necessarily her strong suit. And here she is today, standing up here in front of hundreds and some, sometimes thousands of people leading. And you see the care and the concern and the love and the passion that this kid has. Because that was God's direction for her life. Now, having said that, nobody really knows the children like the parent do more, most of the time. And that's why it's so important for us to be directing them the right way so that we can encourage them. If you say this, if you say, well, I told my son he can do whatever he wants. Well, good luck. He's going to be 37 and living in your basement playing video games. That's what you're going to get for that. You actually have to encourage them to get the education or get a trade or do something. You can't leave them to themselves. It's our job to develop a family vision so that we would be helping and instructing them, initiating them at the beginning of their journey, pointing them in the right direction, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. Last and final thing, and I'm going to crash land the message with this, it's the S stands for stay vigilant. And here, here's the thing I always tell people, is that you're never done parenting. It's never over. 
You have to work this thing right to the very end. And here's what I can promise you what will happen. Uh, you will have some ups and downs in parenting. It's just going to happen. And I don't care how good of a parent you've been, you're going to have some moments where you're going to have some valleys. There's going to be some bumps in the road. Your kids are going to struggle with some issues. And that's why you have to stay vigilant all the way through this thing. And so let me just close with one final story on this. So a couple of years ago, I was in Calgary. I was preaching a message to a group. I gave an invitation at the end, and a whole bunch of people came to Christ. And when we were all done, this, this, these two ladies came up to me and started talking to me. And the one lady said to me, Pastor Mark, I just wanted you to know that tonight my daughter gave her heart to Christ. And I'm so excited. And so I was smiling, and the, she introduced me to the daughter. And, that was, and then I said, did the cheesiest thing that I sometimes do. And I said, she's your daughter? My goodness, you look like sisters. Now then this lady says, oh, Pastor Mark, that's so sweet. My daughter's only 72. I'm 93. They were 93 and 72, and she had been praying for her daughter for 50-some years for her to come to Christ. And that night, her 72-year-old daughter came to the Lord. You are never done parenting people. God is still on the throne. He's still involved in your life. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they were old, they will not depart. That's the passion of the passionate parent. Pastor Mark's second book, A Greater Passion, is now available. Passion is the fuel for life and the key to pursuing our potential. If you have ever wondered if you could get more out of life, then this book is for you, filled with inspirational stories, laugh-out-loud humor. Visit churchoftherock.ca now to get your copy shipped right to your door.